0: Training hard and fighting easy, creating an effective tabletop training exercise for pre-planning MCI response. My guest today is Brian Hupp, I'm Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop. Our guest today is uh, Brian Hupp, and Brian has also contributed towards the uh, EMS1.com uh, response to mass violence series. First of all, welcome, Brian. How are you today? I'm great. How are you, Rob? Fantastic. I feel I got the podcast in totally the wrong order because, uh, as you know, I've already spoken to uh, the guys in from the London bombing, the guys from the Boston bombing. And now you're going to talk about how we prepare people. I feel that you should have gone actually first. The topic that we're going to talk about today is how we prepare our providers and our medics and our individuals to go into that mass incident and operate with some degree of confidence, some degree of knowledge. But before we do that, we're going to pause and we're going to listen to your narration of your article right
1: now. The first 10 minutes of any MCI can make or break its outcome. Whether a multi-vehicle collision, natural disaster, or act of violence, training paramedics to establish command and a casualty collection point means triage can begin within moments of the first arriving units on scene. In preparation for a career in EMS leadership, I took advantage of as many incident command system or ICS classes as I could. My resume was packed with letters and numbers like NIMS 300, the US Fire Administration 0305, and Texas A&M's Management 314. Upon promotion to EMS captain at the Richmond Amos Authority, I felt prepared to manage a large-scale incident, but I made it my business to ensure the EMS providers in my charge had the training they need to manage a mass casualty incident as the first arriving units on scene. I quickly realized I needed a training program or tool that allowed providers to train on the first actions required in an MCI. When I was a U.S. Naval Sea Cadet, I spent time training with U.S. Marines and their Navy Hospital Corpsmen. Before any combat type training, the Marines would construct a sand table and play out scenarios using sticks and rocks to represent buildings and people. In my search to see if there was another public safety organization using sand tables or maps to pre-plan scenarios, I found the Phoenix Fire Department's command training center, which used maps and projections to simulate emergencies. The Phoenix Fire Department employed a collection of maps, miniature apparatus and tools to recreate disasters of all types. But in the spirit of my eighth grade shop teacher, I felt I could make it better myself. I started to evaluate what I would need to make this a reality. And I knew it had to be portable, non-locality specific, easy and fun to use. I needed a landscape or a large map for the scenarios to take place on. I thought about those rugs my kids used to play cars, the kind with the streets from a little city. To keep it simple and free, I hit up my dad who's an architect by training. He used a computer-aided drafting program to draw me a very simple map. I wanted it to be like Richmond, but not so much that it couldn't be used by someone who worked elsewhere. The map had neighborhood streets, a freeway, and a river that cuts the city in half. It included an island with a port and a rail system that closed off major streets when a train was crossing. I pictured myself sitting cross-legged on Christmas morning making model trains shut down streets that are preventing ambulances from returning to quarters after a late call. We called it Nim City. The map was eight feet by four feet and laminated so we could write on it with grease pencils. To make the simulations as realistic as possible, I needed to make buildings, apparatus, and people. I went to my local craft store looking for little buildings, but found something called Bag O Wood. It had balsa wood blocks of all size. I used these to make buildings like nursing homes, schools, houses, and apartment complexes. Each block was painted with the title of what it was and its projected occupancy, uh, like single family home or 20 unit apartment building. For the hospitals, I drilled holes in the front to represent bed capacity. I painted matchsticks green, yellow, red and gray to simulate patients. I tried my best to find a large amount of toy emergency vehicles. I had all of my friends and coworkers raid their kids' rooms for anything that could pass for a fire truck or ambulance. I just couldn't find enough to equip the NIM City Ambulance Authority and their NIM city public safety partners. So I made these units out of wood as well. I even made a subset of vehicles from outside county fire and EMS. Each department had operational units like ambulances and fire trucks, and there were command elements as well. When scenarios play out to include the mitigation phase, I included support assets like boats, mobile command centers, and MCI trailers. I included local state and law enforcement assets to include shift commanders and patrol units. This way, all of our public safety friends could play. Nim City now had a fully staffed EMS, fire and police departments. I could get to work building scenarios. I created a master PowerPoint that described how the newly dubbed Tabletop Incident Command Simulator or TICS would work. It included standardized staffing for each apparatus. I went into detail on how units would be moved from posting locations or stations to staging areas. I created four scenarios that described an event and then gave instructions to the players. They went from a six-patient car crash to a 30-patient MCI at a nursing home. The scenarios included how many of each triage category each of the three hospitals in NIM City can receive. Events included responder injuries, news media requests, or foul weather that threatened uninjured nursing home residents. We mirrored job aids and job action sheets that were located on the medic units and provided them to players who would have them if they were actually responding to an MCI. Each scenario has triage tags that would be given to the EMS providers who would assume that role. These tags provided the information needed to complete start triage and the same worksheets located in the ambulance used to track the amount and type of patients. Once the patient's triage category is identified, the participants place a matchstick in the casualty collection point and then move it around the board to treatment areas, transport areas, and load it into NIMCity ambulances and transport them to the hospital. When we have special events come up, we can create scenarios tailored to that event to identify stumbling blocks before they create stumbles. They could be anything from a car driving through a grandstand to a train derailment or a plane crash. Once the ticks was loaded into its new handy-dandy carrying case, it could be used. But how? And by who? I started by having all my peers in the RA leadership team sit through a scenario. I felt like a kid presenting his vinegar volcano at the fifth-grade science fair. But it worked, and everyone seemed to enjoy it seasoned EMS leaders assumed the role of triage officer on the first arriving medic unit and started whipping through triage tags with surgical precision. Before we knew it, all the patients were off the scene and the scenario was over. I realized that the target audience may not have as much experience with start triage or MCI management. To compensate, I worked with my colleagues at REA and they created a great set of PowerPoint slides on the topics. In preparation for our participation in UCI 2015, World Cycle Championships hosted in Richmond, narrated versions of these PowerPoints, even made it to YouTube for our non-REA public safety partners to enjoy. I started to present the ticks and accompanying PowerPoints to new provider orientation. We would rotate FTOs and current employees through these NEOs so they could experience it as well. It took me a while to find my footing, but my third or fourth time presenting it and running 10 or 20 medics through the program and scenarios, I found my groove. FAST became a top-rated event in the new employee orientation process. It was about six months after we began the TICS classes that I saw my first real sign of success. I had started getting paged MCI responses because of my role in the TICS training. I responded to a bus crash with an estimated 20-plus patients. When I arrived, I found the paramedic on the ambulance had assumed command, established the casualty collection point, and his EMT partner was applying triage tape to all the patients who could not walk. I felt like... Uh, insert famous athlete here. When they won, uh, insert famous sports achievement here. I started to branch out and I gave the presentation to paramedic programs, volunteer rescue squads and peer committees at REA. When we would respond to real world MCIs, we could pull out the ticks and use it to do real time after actions, including radio traffic recordings. We even found ourselves with public safety partners showing interest in sending their officers and firefighters to join us and explore their roles in these scenarios. That fostered great working relationships with new medics and young officers who could someday find themselves responding to these actual type of scenarios. The TICS became a valuable tool that is still used today and could be adapted by any service for tabletop MCI training exercises.
0: Brian, that was fantastic. Yeah, I certainly enjoyed that. And uh, as we both know, I lived that with you and got to, got to play the part of the Either the chief or the press officer coming in to grill the troops on the ground and <laughs> try to give, get them to give away some of the sort of secrets and hippo things. So that was very well done. Let's go on to the, the need to train people.
1: This is an obvious question, but how essential is it for people to be prepared? Oh, so very essential. And a lot of the focus in public safety is training our executive level leaders and our uh, field supervisors in being prepared to manage a mass casualty incident. And we kind of lose focus on who's really setting the tone for the management of these incidents. And that's the first arriving EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. And actually, that's something that I've, I've
0: I've been on police podcasts where I've said to them, when the first ambulance arrives, don't grab them by the arm and haul them into the incident, because if they don't send the report back, then we don't know what's going on. We have no way to establish command and control. So it's a very good point about setting people up to know what happens when that first truck arrives on scene. And, and and as you said, you saw the fruits of your labors when you arrived on that one particular
1: bus crash that day. Absolutely, and I'll never forget it. Uh, arriving and seeing the paramedic standing back with his safety vest on and the fanny pack that contained all the job aids and assuming a command role, which is not a normal thing for a paramedic to do, and actually giving direction to incoming fire apparatus and incoming medic units and taking that command approach to a mass casualty incident, uh, man, again, I'm not a big sports guy, but I imagine that's exactly what somebody feels like when they want a medal of some sort. It's good to see that hard
0: work paying off. People listening to this, they are in their, their agencies and organizations. So how can they start to set up a kit like you described? It sounds like it's actually quite a basic thing to do in terms of just getting the stuff together.
1: It sure is. Um, you can make it as advanced or as basic as you want. Uh, the system we developed at Richmond Amos Authority was, was very basic uh, because we were using our imagination and using our professional experience to put those things into play. Um, we used very simple wooden blocks, uh, black and white maps, and you can purchase pre-made kits that offer all of these things that are as, again, advanced as you want them to be. But um, what you have to do is determine what tools you're going to have at your disposal to mitigate an incident and then create the tabletop versions of them so that you can practice. So we've got, we've got the model, but obviously it's, it's the key lessons that you're trying to impart,
0: particularly how people conduct the triage. So for those that are listening, talk us through the method of triage that uh, people should be adopting uh, in their response
1: to major incidents. Sure. So one of the caveats that I give at the beginning of the training, especially to an outside party is you know, rely on your uh, local guidelines and and standing orders. But at Richmond Amels Authority, we deployed start triage or simple triage for rapid transport. Um, It's based on a system of RPM, or respirations, perfusion, and mental status. Um, Arriving at a mass casualty incident and determining that you have more patients than your initial responding units can manage. Um, Finding out what patients can walk, moving those patients to a casualty collection point, and then determining those patients who couldn't walk Uh, for one reason or another. What's the seriousness of their injuries? What resources do they require to transport them to the hospital or get them off of the scene? And how many of those resources do you need? So using RPM or respirations, perfusion, and mental status, evaluating the patients, not only if they're breathing, but how well they're breathing and the rate they're breathing at. um, Perfusion, determining if they have a pulse at their wrist. And mental status, which requires the patient to follow a simple command like touch their nose or uh, what I typically use is ask the patient to say their name. That's
0: pretty cool. I remember one exercise we did where, um, and God bless them, the Boy Scouts had prepared and moulaged hundreds yep. of Boy Scouts up. And we were doing it as a, as a sort of a bomb scenario. And, of course, we arrive on scene. Um, they've been there for hours. And, again, you know, what a, what a great resource we had. But, of course, the first thing we do is get on the bullhorn and say, anyone that can walk, come to me now. And everybody gets at half, half the field with their casualty cards go, oh, I can get up and walk. And, of course, the, the the training and the reality part of that is that's what you should be doing. If people can walk to you, and, of course, it's safe to do so, they're not under fire or anything, then thin the field out. It's a,
1: it's a great way of doing it, I found. One of the injects we would provide uh, participants in the Tabletop Incident Command Simulator is if they don't do that, nobody gets up and walks. So if those first arriving units don't get on their PA system or their bullhorn and say, if you can walk, come to this casualty collection point, this police car, this alcove of a building, everyone's going to stay on the ground and you have to start triage every one of those patients. Now, we wouldn't let them get through all 30 to 40 patients. We'd stop them after getting through five or 10 and say, wait a minute, you're wasting a lot of time and effort in start triaging all of these patients. When in reality, half of them are going to get up and walk away when you tell them to And if they can get up and walk, they're moving oxygenated blood to their brain enough to make their legs move. And you need to identify those other patients who aren't doing that. So again, I've witnessed
0: you do a lot of these training classes, always love that was actually the highlight, I have to tell you of of the new uh, entry orientation program. But it wasn't only the first arriving ambulance crew you were training, you also had a number of other roles within the whole scenario that people had to understand if they were given a job or a task within the MCI what to do. So who are those other
1: let's call them command appointments that you allocated, and you then briefed them up on. Sure. And uh, the reason that's so important for these field level providers to understand those roles is, uh, you know, I was a night shift supervisor at Richmond ambulance Authority. And in the evening time, there was myself and my lieutenant. And if we had a mass casualty, I didn't have a cache of administrative folks to deploy into these command elements, I required my EMS providers, EMTs and paramedics to fill those roles. Um, and they included Not only command, but triage treatment group supervisors transport officer, we allowed those field level providers to experience those other roles like safety officer uh, logistics um, and it gave them a real kind of 360 degree understanding of the uh, management of an MCI. And,
0: of course, the one dear to my heart also the role of the PIO and. uh... We had a little serial where someone would come in, thrust a microphone into their face, and try to get them to give the give the game away. And of course, it's just a bit of training to realise that uh, you know you have a job to do, uh, but you need to be prepared to if if you are just the medic on the ground to to refer or defer to the appropriate person. But again, all things were included in that, and I think that's why it was a fun, but also people really took t- took things away.
1: Yeah, and the PIO, although a field-level provider is not going to fill that role, uh, one of the things they're going to do is interact with that news reporter or person who's making a news inquiry. Um, And the points that we would try to drive home is intercept them and say, listen, I know you have important questions and I know you need to gather information. I need you to stand over here. And when we have a PIO, I will make sure that person talks to you. And then the key thing that I would really try to emphasize is make sure that when there's a PIO, you tell them that there's a person there that needs that information. Um, I try to never forget that I'm a public servant and these people, including the reporter, is the public. And we have an obligation to them to provide them with the information that they want and need. That's great,
0: those are are wise words. The other person that shows up on your scene that you may not want too soon, of course, is either the elected official or indeed the the big, big chief. Um, And sometimes they they, they may come and try and just kind of freeload, self-deploy into the scene.
1: So how do you train people to deal with that? Well, luckily, my time at RIA, I never had to face that first person. Um, I was very fortunate to have a command staff that allowed us to do our jobs. And that was kind of that's my kind of my belief now as an administrator is my supervisors are there to supervise and I'm not there to interject into their workforce. But, um, you know, you have to show a level of respect, but you have to be direct when you're the provider on scene who's making those decisions and calling those shots. Sometimes you have to look at the person who you directly report to and say, stand by or give them an assignment. Um, Tell them to go manage the press, tell them to go interact with the other public safety executives or the other elected officials to uh, perform other essential job tasks that don't interfere with your ability to command the scene. That's
0: great. Uh, What about uh, operating the radio? Of course, I'm, as you know, I'm a great proponent that communications always the first casualty in any major incident. how are people instructed to manage both the radio, the radio discipline
1: and of course information? Well, everyone wants to talk on the radio when there's an exciting scenario going down. Uh, So it's gotta be a combination of both radio discipline, meaning not overusing the radio, but uh, ensuring that you provide important information to both your command elements. And one of the things we try to emphasize is no crosstalk. If you are the triage officer, there is no reason for you to talk to the transport officer or the treatment areas, group supervisors, uh, you need to, you need to communicate directly with your command elements. Um, and by forcing providers to do that real time gives them the understanding of how important those things are.
0: That's exceptionally important. And of course, the common operating picture has to be gained, but it can be confused by, as you say, too many people jabbering in, in an area that isn't their lane. And uh, we often talked about staying in your lane, but, uh, there has to be a discipline when you're on the ground.
1: No freelancing is the rule of the day. No
0: freelancing. I remember there was a call in Northern Virginia uh, and it was a fire-based DMS system, no names, but uh, they had a fire. It was actually a fire. I remember this as clear as a bell and it was a real lesson that, that hit home for me that uh, a chief came along, wasn't briefed on the scenario, didn't understand, again, the common operating picture and started deploying firefighters into the scene he didn't realize that that particular side of the house was about to collapse and people died and people fell through the floor and uh, that was an example and it certainly came home to me of you know as you say freelancers you have to be very very careful because people think they're doing the right thing they think they're volunteering to do the right thing but actually can compromise the command control and therefore the outcome sometimes of an operation. The ones that are a fault of that, dare I say, I've had many jobs with the word chief in my name. Sometimes the
1: chiefs are the worst culprits. Well, they say chaos stands for chief has arrived on scene. (laughs) I haven't heard that before. I'm going to use it much in the future. Please, and as a chief, I try
0: not to exemplify that. Good man, good man. Again, we have to seek order from chaos. But we mustn't contribute to the chaos when we're trying to seek the order. So, so wise words. Even with the training exercises that you have developed and the tabletop exercises, I'm a great proponent, again, of the fact that we don't necessarily learn lessons. Um, we only learn them when we train and exercise. What do you say to that?
1: Well, I operated under a fantastic medical director during my time in Richmond who used to emphasize that it's the practice of medicine. And with that means we have to constantly learn from both our mistakes and our successes. We have to constantly evaluate when things go right and when they go wrong and what we can do to make them better. Um, I always like to say, can't let good enough be enough. So we have to consistently look at when we operate uh, these principles in an actual incident and determine what went right and what went wrong. Simulation and training make for a better
0: battle day but also clearly as you just said the fact that we need to learn from our mistakes and learn from those lessons that we've identified otherwise we will make no forward progress yes sir you don't have to call me sir anymore brian you're a chief now as well mate
1: <laughs> yes rob absolutely <laughs>
0: thank you for coming on and you spared me the task of narrating this week so i took a break from that and enjoyed listening to you uh, you talk there how can we get in touch with you brian if we want to
1: Uh, No problem. So I'm uh, both on social media, on Facebook and LinkedIn, um, and you can view some of the YouTube PowerPoints that we created during my time at the Richmond Amos Authority on their YouTube page.
0: Well, we'll put a link in the show notes, and uh, I hope that we get to work together again. And uh, it's been a pleasure working on this particular series and, of course, reminiscing and uh, picking up some of the things that we went through, most certainly. Uh, And thank you for coming on to talk about uh, ticks. I'm an actual convert to that program. Uh, I I love it. And I think that uh, people should be able to easily replicate it. And by doing that, it makes the training easier and therefore the operation that follows it as well. So, Brian, thank you, mate. I appreciate it. No, thank you, Rob. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller,
1: and I'm very happy to be here.
0: Thanks all. My guest there was uh, Brian Hupp. Uh, as always, you can follow me on uh, Twitter at UKRobell or over on LinkedIn. If you're listening on the SoundCloud, just hang on for one more second because coming right along will be Chris and Kelly with another superb episode of Inside EMS. I've been Rob Lawrence. My guest was Brian Hupp. Until next time, bye for now.